Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. No one ever spoke like this. To whom shall we go? For he has the words of eternal life. So Lord, we come to you this morning believing and asking that you would help us to listen to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We want to hear you this morning. For we believe that these four Gospels are the voice of Jesus, both by virtue of what they record and by virtue of their inspiration. So we are about to walk among glorious words. Come, Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear. Give me faithfulness to what the Scripture says. And may the voice of Jesus be heard. And grant us a great faith this morning, Lord God. For Jesus says, my sheep, hear my voice and follow me. May that happen. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been married for a couple years, and Kimmy and I, so we wouldn't have to take out any more student loans, we moved back home from Hughesville, Maryland to Annandale, Virginia, where she could finish out her undergrad at uh, University of Maryland. It was actually a closer commute for her from Annandale than it was to Hughesville. Maryland's a weird-shaped state. And so I remember sitting there one day on Saturday morning, and out of Celeste's room came blasting Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody, (laughs) you know? And Charlie and I got in this long conversation, and then came U2's I'm Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. You know, the Joshua Tree album was hot. And then out of the room came Dirty Dancing. You know, all these great songs came out in 1987. I remember them vividly because I had this conversation with Charlie because Charlie was reading the number one bestseller, The Be Happy Attitudes by Robert Schuller. And so I said, well, tell me about this. And Charlie goes, yeah, I'm reading it. It's kind of short. I go, what do you mean short? Kind of just doesn't feel like it's all there. You know, and Charlie was kind of agnostic Roman Catholic. You know, he he wasn't absolute certain, but he he believed in Jesus. Now, how does that work? I don't know. You know, I hope I'll see him in glory, but I'm not certain. But he seemed to get this pretty right. You know, I said, well, can I read it when you're done? Sure. So I read it, and then I came back a week or so later, and I said, what did you honestly think? He said, I was, it was kind of fluffy, you know? It didn't, it, didn't ring, it didn't ring all false, but didn't ring all true either. And I don't know if I can live that way. Because all in all, what he's asking us is to go and be happy. And those of you who remember that Bobby McFerrin, Don't Worry, Be Happy song, that obnoxious, stupid song, you know? Don't Worry, Be Happy. Because you know, once you get out in the real life, It doesn't work that way. For example, Friday, I'm loading some wood in the back of my 2010 Ford Ranger truck. It's snowing. It's a beautiful wintry day. 32 degrees, right? It's cold enough. So I'm feeling kind of manly and throwing wood in the back of my truck, hopping my truck. I'm like, I've done these past nine, almost ten years now. Drove up on the side of my yard, backed it onto my fire pit area on the wood chips, and offloaded the wood. Drove out into my grass, 
sunk. I'm like, this is a great day. Be happy attitude. <laughs> you know? So, I do what every red-blooded American male would do at that time. Started to floor it and rock it. Figured I can get this out of here. Put it in low gear. Took it. I mean, I did everything right, but it was just, I could tell it was sinking, man. It was getting lower. I said, all right, I'm going to stop. I need help. So I called Ben. I said, I think all I need is a little push. He said, all right, I'll be right over. So then I hopped it. I said, okay, I got to go get this wood. So while I'm waiting for Ben to come from Lakewood, I turn on the Suburban. Now, the Suburban is a 2016, 2001 car. It's now 16 years old. And it sounded like a 1915 Model A. I don't even know if they made them in 1915. It, it made noises I've never heard a car make before. Kim drives home and says, did you hear that? Yeah, I heard it. You know, I went and got another load, brought it home. And I told her, I said, I, gotta get the, I, got, I got the truck stuck. And she just kind of rolls her eyes and says, okay, and walks out in the house. So Ben comes, and I said, all right, you got dirty clothes? Yeah, I can get them dirty. All right, give me a push. <laughs> so we start rocking it, and he's trying to push it, and guess what happens to him? <laughs> Be happy. It's going to be a great day. You're in Jesus. Well, we said, okay, we're going to take a risk. We're going to pull her out with old Bessie the Suburban. Ben says, Ben says, no, Dad, it, it, the Suburban will get stuck. No, it's not. It's four-wheel drive. <laughs> so I took the towing cable, and I backed it up, and when I slapped in the four-wheel drive, it made more noises that I'd never heard before. This thing's about done. We are actually trading it in this spring, <laughs> you know. And so I backed it up, and it was making these funny noises, and I just laid hands on it and said, Lord, help me, because I don't want to get a towing company. And actually, it towed it out beautifully, like, like it wasn't even blinking. It was, it was easy. So then I did what we do. We went and got the last load of wood, pulled it up, backed it up in my driveway, offloaded all the wood on my driveway. And so I'm, okay, I'm doing pretty good. So I pulled into my, because Kimmy was eating lunch. She was on lunch break. So I walked in there and said, okay, it's been a great day. She goes, please don't touch anything. Please, just, just sit down and, and don't touch anything. I go, ah, it'll be fine, honey. And then I look out the front door, and my truck is in the neighbor's driveway. I forgot to put it in gear. She goes, don't touch anything, just Go sit down. And I'm thinking to myself, don't worry. <laughs> Be happy. <laughs> it doesn't work. Because some days you're not. Some days you are really incompetent. <laughs> right? Everybody's had days like that. At times you go, how stupid. Never should have driven it in the grass. I always, normally I walk on the grass to make sure it's frozen. Oh, I didn't. Normally, I would have uh, made sure the Suburban was, was, had enough transmission fluid, enough oil. I didn't. Normally, I would have put it in park and engaged the check <laughs> and put the emergency brake on. But I didn't. One of those days. Well, you've had them. We all have them. Does this text speak like that to us? I want to propose no, it doesn't. Half of it does, 
But there's so much more for the person who's a Christian or one becoming a Christian. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of Jesus' most famous words, the Sermon on the Mount. He starts it off with the Beatitudes. This huge crowd's following him. He has compassion on them. And so he does what every rabbi would do. He sits down and then begins to teach. He's assuming in that culture a, a position of authority as he teaches them. Now, we're not going to do what Martin Lloyd-Jones did. We're, gonna, we're in the lectionary throughout Epiphany, so I'm going to kind of whiz through these a little bit. Martin Lloyd-Jones did literally seven weeks of sermons on just the Beatitudes, 45 minutes long. They're absolute gold. I encourage you to buy the book, Studies on the Sermon on the Mount, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, we're not going to do that. We're just going to kind of fly over at 500 feet so you understand and have knowing and how it applies to our lives. Because I think what we see here, realistically, number one, are the qualities that are commended upon the believer and the rewards associated with them, number one. And number two, the hero who fulfills them. That's, that's the biggest lessons for us this morning. The qualities commended and the rewards associated with these characteristics for the believer. And two, the hero who fulfills them. Well, let's first look and see if Dr. Schuler was right. Does the Greek word markarius, translated blessed, mean happy? Well, it can. It can translate that way and render it that way, but it can be a serious misleading of the reader and the believer to render it simply as be happy. Because then you pale it down to just an imperative. No matter what happens in your life, be happy. Okay? But read contextually, one sees that happiness is truly a subjective state. I had a great day yesterday. I was very happy. You know? Friday, not so much. Whereas Jesus, though, is making an objective judgment about these people gathered, and us, his people gathered. He's declaring not what they may feel like, but what God thinks about them. And on what, on that count, that they are, they are blessed people in Christ. Okay? It's seen as a status. That's who we are. And therefore, he gives a description, and he commends these characteristics to the person who's a believer and that the one becoming a believer. That the person who's a Christian and one becoming a Christian first is poor in spirit. For theirs, verse three, 3, is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to recognize before God that I am spiritually bankrupt. That I bring absolutely nothing to the table. I have nothing in my spiritual bank account that merits anything of my salvation and my status before God. For he is holy, and I am not. Rather than our culture in the West, which says, you know, I've done some bad things, I've done some good things, I think my good things outweigh my bad, Lord, what do you think? How good do you have to be? Are you certain about that? See, the reality is there's no one righteous, no, not one, says the Apostle Paul. And throughout Scripture it says this. And the person who has and recognizes their bankruptcy 
they are those who have the kingdom. They are children of the king just by virtue of being in the kingdom, not because of their stat and their merit. The Christian and the one becoming a Christian also, verse 4, is those, as they mourn, they shall receive comfort. Because we go through seasons of mourning in our life. Every single one of us, if you live long enough, we will go through stages where very tragic and sad things happen to us. And happen to people we love and people we care for. And so, rather than our culture that denies it, that say so-and-so passed away, which comes from the Church of Scientists, by the way, the first Church of Christ Scientists. It's a cult. Mary Baker Eddy devised the phrase, passing away. We don't just die, we pass away. I don't know about you, but when a loved one passes away, it doesn't seem like they just passed away. They died. They're not breathing. Their heart's not pumping. And so it's not a sin to say that, by the way. I'm not saying that it is. It is a softer thing to say. But the reality doesn't, doesn't portray reality. And our culture doesn't want death. You can't die in Irvine, California. Did you know that? There's not one funeral or cemetery in the whole city of Irvine, California. Because you can't die there. All right? You can go to Forest Lawn and get buried, but you can't go to Irvine and die. That's the, that's the signal. But Jesus is mentioning those who are suffering bereavement. Those who are mourning with those who mourn. Those who are weeping with those who weep. Those who mourn over the injustices of the world. They will be comforted. That God will usher in a day. One day. And we live in the present. That God may give us a peace that surpasses understanding in Christ. But there will be a better day. One day. There will be no more mourning. No more tears. No more crying. And that is coming. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do not confuse meekness with weakness. All right? Meekness means a great self-effacement. That it's not about me. That I have strength, but it's accompanied by great humility. It's courage under fire, if you will. See, the meek person doesn't have to fix everything. The meek person doesn't always have to have the last word. The meek person is willing to go into the fray, but as they do so, is calm, steady, and humble as they do so. And the meek allow God to move. Michael Green, was, when he was with us at Trinity those couple years that I was there, shared the story that the Roman horses, the high-ranking generals and officers, rode horses in the Roman legion, and they, before the horse went to battle, had to pass the meekness test. Did you know that? And the meekness test was a small torch was lit underneath them, and that horse had to learn to stand perfectly still. And once they could do that, they were ready. In a similar way, we, followers of Christ, as we stand steady, no matter how strong you are. You might be a 99-pound weakling. That's okay. In Christ, you're strong. And we be humble. And we're willing to, no matter what's going on around us, 
project that because of what Christ has done. And what will happen? What's our reward if we're meek? Well, it says we'll inherit the earth. That one day in the new heaven and the new earth, you'll have your own patch of ground that's yours. I'm going to take Virginia. You can't have it. All right? I don't know. That's a joke. You know? But I think that, you know, you look at the Lord of the Rings, and I think the new earth will be somewhat like Rivendell all over the world. Just beautiful. And we'll each be able to have a place that, that's our own to share and to bless one another with, and it's going to be wonderful. As long as we're meek people. Next, verse 6. The person who's a Christian, or becoming a Christian, is blessed as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. My next-door neighbors, the Cantors, were a Jewish family. They were wonderful. They taught me all about Judaism, and they always... They, they, they taught me how to negotiate a deal at their garage sales. You know, they'd have a sticker on this radio. I wanted a radio. It was 1967. And they were getting rid of a radio that was built in 1958. Okay? So it really was only nine years old. You know, but I thought it was ancient. And it was a tu vacuum tube radio. It took three minutes to warm up. It was a Motorola radio. And I wanted that radio. And so it had a sticker price on it, and they would never, you know, I'll, okay, I'll pay you a duck. They no, nah, make me a price. So we bargained, and it was fun, and they always made me do some work. I never figured that out. I had to do some work for them, and then they let me have the radio. So I plugged in that Motorola radio, and I turned it on, and three minutes later, out of the radio came, I can't get no satisfaction, right? Right? I'm like, this is the best radio ever, you know? W-E-E-L, Wheel Radio out of Fairfax, Virginia. I heard Mick Jagger in my sleep singing, I can't get no satisfaction, but I try, but I try. I can't get no, you know, we're singing it for the, you know, next 20 years. Someone, I had some friends go see them just a couple years ago in Toronto. Mick is still hopping around like he's 25. It's amazing. It's more than yoga, I think. You know, you know. There's, there's more than yoga going on, man. I'm telling you. Anyway, amazing. But that's who we are. We're always looking for satisfaction that the world is saying is satisfying, and it will never truly satisfy. There are false satisfactions, false glories that we all pursue. And Jesus is saying, no, my people, or those who are becoming my people, are blessed because they hunger and thirst for righteousness. This person doesn't buy that culture's definition of satisfaction. It buys God's definition by a pursuit of an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Pursuing the word sweating in a workout in it, sweating in a workout in prayer, sweating and getting up at an inconvenient time on Sunday morning and getting here to be with one another, to listen to this crazy guy say something about God's word, to, to make this a priority. And it's not out of a duty. It's not just, I, I come to church because I should go to church. No. I'm glad the culture doesn't buy that anymore, quite frankly. I, I like that some of you guys do come out of duty, and some days you need to do that, but the reality, we come here out of a love for what the Lord has done for us. And 
grow in my relationship with the Lord, grow in my relationship with one another, and at a bare minimum, we carve out Sundays to do that. But that's what we do, and we're hungry for that kind of life. And as we do so, we shall have true satisfaction. Sorry, Nick. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, we all want mercy for ourselves, but justice for those other guys. It's the human default setting. It's important that we get that because we have received mercy, we extend it to others as we're given opportunities, that our default setting isn't first for justice, but it's also for mercy. In our relationships especially, in our marriages, in our relationships with parent-child, with our neighbors, even though you put a big divot in their side yard, you know, I'm I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll plant spring in the grass. You'll plant grass in the spring, I promise. But we extend mercy to one another. And as we do so, we receive it. Eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart signifies a clean heart, one that's been washed up and cleansed. When the ancient Jew would come to the temple, there was all kinds of baths. I mean, you walked miles to get there. You were filthy. And so you had to be clean because you couldn't come just as you are. You had to come clean. Clean robes. Clean body. Everything. Head to toe as you came to the temple. And this is what he's pure, because the person who's pure in heart recognizes, like Jesus says later on in Matthew's Gospel, that out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. See, the heart is not the place where we naturally expect purity, but Jesus expects to find it in his people. You know, you hear people say all the time, yeah, God knows my heart. He knows me. I'm trying. Really? You want him to know your heart? You know? Because according to God's word, it's not a pretty picture. Right? I don't want God to see my heart. I want him to just clothe me in his righteousness. Because the pure in heart will see God face to face. You remember the story in Exodus where Moses says, Lord, I want to see you. God says, oh no. Oh no. I'll just let you see my behind. Because if you saw me for who I am, Moses, you couldn't even survive. That's how glorious, resplendent, holy our Lord is. But one day, because we're pure in heart, we get to see him face to face. And he will say to us, well done, good and perfect servant. Enter into your rest. Next, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Our journey groups just discussed this in in the first step of resolving conflict in marriages and in relationships. (coughs) A peacemaker strives to be at peace with other people, even when they're not. You search it out, even, and necessary to do so. And Jesus says when when we do that as God's people in our day-to-day lives and our relationships, the world sits up and takes notice because what are these people called? The sons of God. See, that person is not just religious. That person is the church. That person is being the church in the community because they're peaceful people. They've got the peace of God in their heart. 
And last, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're not being persecuted because you're just a Christian. You're persecuted because you're a righteous Christian. You're that different Christian. You're that Christian that the community looks at and goes, okay, I get it. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, verse 11, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And, you know, I've discovered as we live out in this community and I'm sticking my neck out, the world doesn't hate us. They don't. You know, it, it's amazing to see the favor that, that God has given Christchurch and the Christchurch community, you and I in this community, in Bay and Avon Lake and Sheffield and Avon in particular. It's amazing. They don't hate us, but there's a few who look at you and give you strange looks, might say something like, I- I'm shocked that a person as bright as you could believe that. Or just would marginalize you, oh, that, that's, just, that's just you. Friends, that, that pales in comparison to what our brothers and sisters are going through in northern Nigeria. It pales in comparison to what our brothers and sisters are going through in Iraq, Iran, and Syria right now. But it's persecution nonetheless. And it's fascinating. As we go to our prayer time, we always pray for Bishop Zumbas. It's heartwarming to know that the Diocese of Bukuru prays for Christ Church West Shore. They do. They pray for us every Sunday in Nigeria that we would stand fast in this decreasing non-Christian culture because they know where to go to. And they're praying for our protection, despite being marginalized at times. And when we're marginalized, it's okay. The prophets were marginalized. The prophets were made fun of. The prophets were persecuted. It's okay. Because we're standing good standing. So now, what do we do with this? I mean, you know, okay, Gene, it's, that's who we are in Christ, supposedly. But I don't look like that. I'm not very meek. I don't hunger and thirst as I should. If that's what you've been thinking, good! It's fascinating because the same year that Robert Schuller wrote the Be Happy Attitudes, a professor at Texas A&M, Virginia Stem Owens, wrote an article for the Reformed Journal because he was teaching English literature for first-year freshman students in College Station, Texas. And she's thinking, probably what you're thinking, well, that's the Bible Belt. You know, they know the Bible. They all go to Sunday school down there, right? They, they know it. What she discovered is, you know, they, they, they're not that familiar with it. Many of her class of 50 freshmen didn't even know it. So she gave them the assignment to read the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5 through 7, as an assignment. And just as a, write an essay on what you think about it. You know what they came back with? They hated it. They couldn't stand it. This was 30 years ago. Quite frankly, this is what I've seen my entire life. The world doesn't want anything to do with it, really, in their own, in their own strength. And so the same year that Whitney Houston was blasting out, I want to dance with somebody, the world really hasn't changed that much. 
because what they said was quotes like this. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery? That's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. And so Virginia Stem Owens said, Yes, finally, biblical literacy has come to the point in America where people are able to respond to Jesus Christ without filtering him through 2,000 years of cultural haze. This is, good, this is good news. It is. It's not a bad thing. It should elicit that reaction to it. We should kind of hate it. We, we might be even a little terrified by it. Why? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we digest it, you get to the end of that, and you say, God, save me. Because of Jesus, I should be this poor in spirit. Because of Jesus, I should be comforted in my mourning. I should be meek. I should be hungry and thirsty. I should be merciful. I should be pure in heart. I should be peaceful. I should be receiving some persecution, but I'm not. But if you're a Christian or you're becoming one, you want to. You're looking, you're hoping that I can grow in these things, these characteristics. Because let me tell you, friend, only Christians and only those who are becoming Christians know that they just don't need home improvement in my heart. They know they just don't need God to help them. They know the last thing that they need is somebody telling them, be happy. What they know they need is absolute perfect righteousness, and they don't have it. So how do you come to that place? that the Beatitudes are describing that kind of person. And if you haven't become that kind of person, and you can't do any of the things that the Beatitudes say or the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and you're trying your own strength, trust me, it's going to crush you the next month. Absolutely crush you. So what do we do? Well, Paul got it. Philippians 3.9, Paul says, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's resting in the reality of God's love for you upon, on the cross, brothers and sisters. Let me ask you, when you hunger and thirst for something, let's say you're absolutely impoverished right now, January 28th, right? 28th? 29th? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. When you, you, uh, you, you, if you were starving, would you go out and buy some burpee seeds at Lowe's and plant a garden and wait for it to grow if you were starving? No. Would you go out and get any job you could, maybe just a janitor job to work so I can, I can do it and you have to wait a couple weeks while you starve for your first paycheck? You're not going to do that. What you're going to do is recognize you need some intervention. You need some help. You need to go to somebody and say, I need some food. Can you, can you, I need some grace right now. And that's exactly what God does. Because you hunger and you thirst for the Lord, and he'll satisfy you. 
he'll fill you up. And by grace, he'll do what you couldn't do because of what he's done for you on the cross. In the Old Testament, every time someone was blessed, it was describing a major person or a character who was blessed of God, and we would try to emulate them. That's natural. That's what we do. You want to you be like Daniel. You want to be David. You want to be those guys. And that's good. There's nothing wrong. But all of a sudden, you get to the Beatitudes, and this is the profile of the hero. Someone that we should emulate, too. But this is a different kind of hero, isn't it? Before the Beatitudes describe you and me, and they do, they describe Jesus. Because here's the one who fulfilled all them. He is our hero. When we trust in him, he's our hero. He clothes us in his righteousness. And he became poor in spirit upon the cross, crying, Father, where are you? I got nothing. And died the death that we couldn't die. And when he does that, he makes us a prince. He makes you a princess, ladies. Because you're a child of the king. He's the one who mourned and wept inconsolably and died as the earth was dark for our behalf so that we could know the comfort of God. Jesus was spat upon, whipped, beaten, nailed to the cross, showing what true meekness looks like and therefore showing true strength. He was hungry and thirsty, and upon the cross he shouted out, I thirst. And therefore, as we hunger and thirst, we can be righteous in him. Jesus got justice upon the cross so we could receive the mercy that we didn't deserve. He lived the perfect life under the Father, pure in heart, and in so doing, he was the perfect sacrifice so that we can see God's face. We don't have to turn away from the presence of God. We can behold the Lord face to face because of what Jesus has done. When Peter used the sword, Jesus stepped in and was the ultimate peacemaker and healed Malchus's ear and made peace for us upon the cross so that no longer is God's wrath upon us, his favor is upon us in Christ. And he knows what it is to be persecuted. He knows what it is to suffer for our sake so that our reward can be great. You see, typically what we do, my friends, we settle for playing in the mud puddles that our Ford Ranger makes on the side yard in Ohio when spiritually we could have a vacation for a month at Edisto Island in South Carolina. I don't know if you knew it, but the Crystal Cathedral is closed today. He did his best to preach the law for a better part of 50 years, and it died. It's now Christ Cathedral, Roman Catholic. Beautiful. Good for them, you know, <laughs> of our, the Diocese of Orange County, California. It's an amazing building, but I think it's a good testimony to the death of liberal Protestant theology. The world doesn't buy it anymore. Good. The Sermon on the Mount really does now 
terrify us, horrify us, but we got a hero. Let's embrace him this morning and rest in his grace that he offers us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you gave us a hero in Jesus. And these words are absolutely glorious. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us those ears and that we would follow you and walk with you this day with these glorious words. And that we would show these characteristics because of what you've done and the work, words of Micah, that we would love justice, do mercy, and walk humbly with you all of our days, empowered by the Holy Spirit. For your honor and glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.